Many of you know that the process has been in existence for over 50 years, committed to Bob Hoffman's vision of world peace one person at a time. In my conversation today with Tim Lawrence, Hoffman teacher and co-founder of the UK Hoffman Institute in England, Tim takes me back to Bob's early years, the time in which he grew up, and also his early thinkings on the process, as well as Tim's own origins and his own co-founding of the Institute. Please enjoy this amazing conversation with Tim Lawrence. Welcome to Love's Everyday Radius, a podcast brought to you by the Hoffman Institute. My name is Drew Horning, and on this podcast, we catch up with graduates of the process and have a conversation with them about how their work in the process is informing their life outside of the process, how their spirit and how their love are living in the world around them, their everyday radius. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Hoffman Podcast. My name is Drew Horning. Tim Lawrence is with us today. So great to have you, Tim. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me, Drew. Tim founded the Hoffman Institute in the UK in 1995. He's also written a book called The Hoffman Process, and that's been out for about 20 years and available at most sites uh, for people after they've done the process, also on Amazon and other bookstores. Tim, what else would you add to that introduction? So good to have you. Uh, yeah, it's happy to be here. Um, I know you've done a lot of podcasts, and I've enjoyed hearing your your voice. I suppose before I um, founded the Institute here, I was in the lucky position of being able to live in the USA um, and study with Bob Hoffman, having done various other things. I mean, I moved to Northern California specifically because it felt to me that it was very much a, a crucible, you know, a melting pot of all wonderful ideas about East, West, psychology, health, et cetera, et cetera, really, you know, mixing things up. And so I landed there and sort of having, having been there for about eight or nine years, lots of people started recommending the process to me. So, um, you know, I feel very lucky to have participated in it at a time when well i needed it and it was it was very much um there and fresh it had only been done residentially for about four years by then and you trained with bob and in fact as he was winding down some of his work you were one of the last teachers to be trained under him i was yeah no he very much um took me under his wing so i was shadowing him a lot for most of my apprenticeship trainings as it were you know we do did a lot of training actually being on the site in the process we you know taking notes watching observing so i did a lot a lot with him probably more than anybody else just because of the timing you know it happened to be there a time when he wasn't when he wasn't traveling and then very soon afterwards because of age you know wish to be at home and so on he he pretty much gave up um, teaching in the us and abroad Tim, before you and Bob came together, 
in that formative time in Northern California, so much going on. Take us back a little further about who you were, how you were raised in your childhood, and how you came to be the adult that you are. It is Hoffman, so we, we, can, we can go to childhood. I suppose I came to it because I was a very curious child. I was, you know, quite introverted. And I think one of the big shocks of my life was going to boarding school about seven, which is what, you know, certain aspects of our society do over here in the UK, as you, as you know. Parents were divorced. So I learned my type of survival was to shut everything down. Now, you know, everybody eventually comes off because there's something they want to unpack in their, in their childhood. But I tried to unpack it in many, many different ways. I was, as I said, very curious at what I would do. And I was also quite good or um, I'd work at languages. So I was able to travel quite a bit, earn money, and then travel more. And that's what I did after university, actually before during and after university. And I ended up finding out quite a lot of stuff about how the East taught psychology. Um, but I also had spent six months hitchhiking, finding out, living in Northern California when I was 18 before I went to university. So I had these all these influences, messed up childhood, very introverted, British upbringing, rebelling against my parents, living in a lot of alternative couches. But specifically, India taught me a couple of things. One of them was that Eastern ways are excellent. You know, you can get out of your Western mind, you can meditate, you can see things from afar. But Western psychology explained things better to me. So then I was looking for something that um, perhaps married the two of them. And what I found was that everything that I would come across, talk about, hear about, read about, we're talking a long time before YouTube or TED Talks, um, seemed to emanate from Northern California. So I made a beeline over there and did lots of different things, you know, mainly to get out of the intellect and get out of my own repressed or depressed state. I would do a lot of you know, expressive stuff, you know, the training groups and counter groups and so on. I think eventually, still quite jaded, people said, people who I knew, who like me, had gone there from different countries or different parts of the US to feel out what was going on in the personal development movement, and said, well, try, try Hoffman. So, so I, I did. It was a bit shocked about you know, the intensity of it, um, but said, okay, well, I'll give it a, I'll give it a, give it a try, and um, did it. But, but so bef before you go there, I have a question. As you're in this, I see you as such a seeker, Tim. You talked about being a curious child, but so much seeking, turning east, turning west. And if you remember back then, what questions were you trying to get answered? Was it like, how does life work? How do people work? The only question I can think of as a general one is, what's it all about? You know, there must be more. There must be more to this. So, you know, I would, would get some knowledge from learning a different language, and that would give me an access to a different culture, but that wasn't enough. Then I would learn a bit from philosophy, but that wasn't enough. Then I would learn a bit from an Eastern or Western religion, but that didn't give the whole picture. And then I would look at anthropology or evolutionary psychology and so on. So all the questions were, yeah, how does this system work? You know, how are we as human or spiritual beings um, meant to look at it? Am I missing something? You know, so 
a lot, a lot, a lot of synapses firing off, I guess, trying to figure that out. And, you know, it must be said, you know, I would work and travel. I didn't opt for, you know, a steady job um, or a steady paycheck. I opted for short bursts of, of you know, unskilled labor until I was sort of in my mid-20s. So that was how I, you know, accrued a fair bit of um, amateur knowledge without the MA or the PhD. You know, speaking of not having a PhD, part of what made Bob the perfect person was that he didn't have the formal education. He didn't even have a high school degree. He was just a tailor. And as such, he wasn't obstructed or bogged down with too much information. He had a cleaner palate, which he could receive this download. Can you say a bit more about that? I'd agree. It was like, you know, he observed life as a tailor, as a poor Jewish kid growing up with immigrant parents in a way that gave him more generalized or you know, an ability to see things without all the layers of interpretation that we would have if he'd been to you know, a regular university, especially if he'd been to an Ivy, Ivy League university. One of the things before I um, diss universities too, too much, I just sort of an analogy. They say that Harvard or even Cambridge University over here have had more Nobel laureates, more Nobel Prizes given to their faculty members than the whole of France. And the thing they say about French is that, you know, there's a sort of a rote way of learning. And so they won't think out of the box. And that's the same way my analogy is that Bob was able to think out of the box. Now, on his own, I don't think he would have been able to achieve much because they just said, you know, what what do you know? But that's where he formed good alliances because he was able to show people that, hey, I've got something here. But yeah, it was extraordinary. You know, could he as a tailor observe how a man's suit worked, observe how, you know, a man's psychology was? But I think he had access to, you know, tuning into other other types of wisdom, such as Newton when he was looking at apples or the guy who was watching clouds when he figured out the double helix. Sometimes we need to kind of float off out there to get a, a more wider and general idea about humans and how it works. You share this metaphor story of the wise elder pouring tea into a cup and it overflowing and the person saying, wait, the hot tea spilling on the floor. And they offer that that's right. The only way we can learn is if the cup is empty. Do I have that roughly right? A Zen Zen master pouring the cup of tea and it overflows. I mean, why are you doing it? Well, I can't, you, you cannot learn anything until your cup is emptied. You know, you have to empty your cup, at least in part, if you're overflowing with knowledge. And that, that's kind of, you know, an analogy for us going into something like the process and trying to learn something new. We've got to sort of shelve our old systems of belief for a while, haven't we? But Bob, yeah, he was still, and Andrew, he was quite naive in the world. That naivete may have been his gift, right? Yeah, I mean, sometimes I think of him as uh, as a genius because he was he was simple. Uh, his brilliance was in boiling things down to simplicity, and rather than stocking theory on the theory onto theory, he he brought it down very very simple. If you didn't get enough love emotionally, you learn something that causes you you know to behave in a certain way throughout the rest of your life. It's a deep emotional deep emotional learning. 
Bob sort of made it all about love as an essential feature, an essential ingredient in survival and thriving. I mean, he, he put sort of into psychological terms what a million songs are always doing, aren't they? You know, we, we do need our, our basic needs are, are to love and to be loved, to be seen and to be, and to be heard. And um, yeah, he was able to see it in a way that people could really understand it and do something about it experientially rather than having to read another 50 books about it. Off the cuff, is there a song about love that seems to represent that? There are so many, but my problem, and my kids are always laughing about this, is I can only remember the first line of a song. You know, I managed to have thousands of words, useless words of foreign, foreign languages in my head, but only the first line of a song, and then the second line I'll get completely wrong. <laughs> so, Tim, you work with Bob, and then eventually you head back and founded the UK Institute. What year was that? So that was 95. It's easy to remember because the same year that my eldest son was, was born. Bob had retired by then, although we, we saw him again at a conference in LA in 96, and then he died the following, the following year. But 95 was it. As I'm often reminded, you know, England, was, England the UK was not exactly very open to courses such as such as these it was really radical at the time so it took you know five or six years to to build up anything at all what do you notice about the difference between the process in the uk and the process in the us you just mentioned maybe not quite as open to these kinds of things and it was perceived as maybe more radical yeah there's there are you know obviously going to be cultural differences just as there are with you know with the other countries that do that do the process one of the fundamental things, and we still have to take this into account, and this is a terrible generalization that is not borne out. I can't show any academic papers. But you, Drew, and the people around you are the descendants of the ones in the family who said, I've had enough of here. I want to move on and change the past. I'm in the middle, so I have tried that, but now I've come back. So we often teach people who are the descendants of people who stayed here, who said, well, you know, you can go off, but I'm going to stay here. I quite like it this way. That to me, when I saw, because before um, I came and taught in England, I taught sometimes in, in France and, and Austria, that people take longer to forgive here. So we have to adapt the process to allow more different sessions to get to the different levels of understanding and, and forgiveness. That's just on one very particular Hoffman, Hoffman level. And a saying you have in your country is the bigger the front, the bigger the back. The British may be very repressed, but when they go, they really go. You know, obviously, um, if you've stuffed it all down, when it comes out, it really comes out. So if you put some music on or if you let people, you know, have a good old shouting session, they'll really go for it. That isn't, you know, true of everybody, but if you sit on something long enough, it's going to explode. I love the idea that so much of how the process is presented and, and how students show up in the process has its origins back to the very beginning of our country. We left, you stayed, although on some level you left and then came back again, you in particular, but those who take it in England are the people who stayed. And so therefore, that leads to them struggling to forgive. Mm. And that is, you know, a, simplif a simplification. But yeah, you know, we, we're comfortable with the past and therefore, you know, 
I think you you will find in England there is there is more irony, there is more sarcasm, and there is more vindictiveness. You know, there's that mocking, that put down that we're very very good at. Now, again, I'm really hedging my bets on the generalization here, but your country is known as not being so big on irony. Although I would say people I know in New York and LA have plenty of irony going for them. So you know what you what you say is more what's understood. Whereas here, you always have to look at what's the level underneath that, and what's the level underneath underneath that. I appreciate the the subtle nuances. So, how has the journey been spearheading an institute, and how have things gone? You know, as as time has moved forward, I imagine you've grown along with us as well. Yeah, I know. At the be- at the beginning, um, remember, you know, I can't say, "Oh, yeah, it was a succession." Very, very start. I remember waking up in the middle of the night, sweating, a cold sweat, thinking, "Have I made a huge mistake?" You know, giving up a nice life in California, better climate, first in London and then um, outside of London, bringing up our boys in the country. So the first bit was just, you know, six students, eight students, two processes, four processes, six processes a year. And then suddenly something clicked. And it might have just been the inertia. You know, we got the ball rolling. Um, we had no publicity for five or six years. And then I think it was yeah, 2001, suddenly it all came together. Also, we had a site which we could just call our own. Somebody bought it with us in mind and designed it basically for us. So we put on many more processes. We had a couple of teacher training programs that had gone through. So we had more, more staff. And then we had we were opening up Ireland and South Africa. And yeah, suddenly we were booked six months a- a- ahead. And we, you know, we started to have a good, good reputation. And I think, you know, as in the US, if it's a decent enough product and it's done mainly by word of mouth, you know, we don't exactly take out ads in, in the, what is it called, halftime of Super Bowl. <laughs> it has to be word of mouth. People will come. And, and I think um, people recommend it to more than one person. So there's always, you know, an, an over demand for it. With both of our countries, you know, there is a, a waiting list to do it. So, yeah, it took a while. And now, you know, because English is a second language of so many people, you know, we get, you know, in an average process, we probably get 10 or 11 different, different nationalities. So now, you know, we do take into consideration more other, more other, more other cultures, of course. And people come from uh, all parts of Europe and your part of the country to take it, not just England. Is that true? Yeah, no, of course. Well, all over. I would say, because there isn't an institute in Greece or Turkey or Slovakia, or, uh, quite a few countries of further, further east. So if their level of English is strong enough, and I've noticed in the last 10, 20 years, it's really picked up because, you know, if you want to do business in Bulgaria or China, Japan, Brazil, you've got to speak, speak English. So, you know, there's a great incentive to speak English so they can do it over here. But um, for some reason, um, our word of mouth got very strong in the Middle East, specifically the Gulf, the um, Persian Arabian Gulf, depending on which side you are. And they come over very, very regularly. And I remember asking them once, you know, do we need to culturally adapt it for you? And they said, actually, when we travel to a place to do a course, we are prepared to, to how, how it is because, you know, they're very used to going, getting the degree at, you know georgetown university or somewhere but um we have become more sensitive to 
how it could be perceived. There are certain things we do around, you know, death, for instance, you know, talking about death, that we have to take in consideration different cultural, cultural perspectives on that. One of the things I appreciate about the process is that it's always being updated and tweaked. It's not hark back to traditionalists and the past and delivered exactly the same way. So how have you noticed how things have adjusted over time? I hear that around death. And and what other ways has the process adapted? I know, you know, there's no such thing as, you know, a solid written guide that will that will stay there for ages. Um my partner Serena always is trying to get it done. I said, look, it's constantly a work in work in progress. But it's only when somebody comes from outside, like we had a, a South African teacher wasn't able to be up here for a couple of years because of the pandemic and just came back and worked with us this month. She said, Oh my God, things have changed so much in two years. And I said, No, really? Come on. She said, Yeah, yeah, they have you done this, this, and this. And I hadn't noticed because I think in my mind, every month or every time I'm teaching, they go, How could we make this better? How could we do this or that? And that's just my perspective. And of course, being a member of Hoffman International, we're always listening to what the best ideas are. And actually, one of my big motivations to be very much um, a member of director of Hoffman International over the years was to get to gather and to circulate the best best practices so you know what is it that we're not hearing what is it we're missing what could we do better and i know that's a huge conversation right now in in the u.s particularly tim because i think for people listening to understand the role hoffman international plays it's quite a thing that we have this collective body that supports the work we're doing and that in a way brings us all in alignment, swimming in the same direction. What importance do you hold that the Hoffman International Organization does for the brand? I think it's very important just to shake us each up from sort of just becoming a little too settled in our, in our ways. You know, so the U.S. has all kinds of great ideas. You have a vastly bigger team than most other countries. But Italy might have a certain way of putting on a ritual that is done with just so much finesse. Or the French may have a particular way with language, because it'd be translated, that says, you know, this can be done in a certain nuanced way. Or the Germans say, hey, you know, when we go and do the expressive work, we found that this is most, most effective. So when you get, you know, after 50 plus years of doing it, 15 countries or so getting together and pooling their talent, you're bound to get some great ideas or people um, saying, oh, um, I think I should give up that old idea and, and take on this new idea. Because is our strap line not something like when you're serious about change? So the Hoffman International makes sure that we don't just, um, you know, especially countries which have a, a, a small team, you know, some of them just have two, three, four teachers, that they have access to other, others with many, many more ideas. I love that. The different perspectives that countries bring to the larger collective. Are there examples of that? Well, yeah. I mean, I'm just thinking years and years ago, none of us had really been to Brazil. They started the process there in 72. I mean, not that much longer after Bob started as a group. Um, Well, actually, maybe in the same year that Bob started as a group in, in the US. Years later, one of the U.S. teachers went went there, 
and saw that their bashing rounds, you know, where we get um, after a couple of days to ex express old emotions, were not open and unended until everybody was exhausted or the, or the most fit person there on the room and eventually finish. But they timed them and gave them certain themes so everybody had a focus. I was like, oh, why did I never think of that, of that before? Another one is that you know, the, the US has started with a lot of classical music in, in accompanying closed eye processes. And then the late 80s, when it was taken to Germany, Switzerland, Austria, they had quite a, I suppose, a connection with people there who did lovely music that now, you know, we know much, much better through different mediums. So they really, you know, shook up the, the music. If you're singing of specific for a, a session, yeah, but then I suppose, you know, our listeners, if they don't know the process, it might get a bit too, too technical. But, you know, when there's things about how we do people's perspectives or transference, you know, people will give different ideas about how that can be done. But one very important thing is, you know, time is not always on our side. Time is remorseless. And, um, you know, we've had to compare the best ideas to what works with, with time, too. Fantastic. Tim, you did the process 30 years ago? Even more. Only, only a bit more. I did it in um, late 89, yeah. Okay. So what do you remember? Something more than 30 years ago, one week of your life, what still lives inside you as a memory from that week? Firstly, I'm going to answer this intellectually before I access the personal <laughs> side of it is I think the memories are stored in the limbic system where there's no difference in time or place. So some of the things when I'm teaching, I remember from my own processes if they were happening that very day. So firstly, I remember just the big compassionate eyes and the ability of Bob to get me to smile or to laugh or to cry at the, at the stroke of a hat or, or just, you know, some words he would use. I remember the incredibly cleansing sessions. I particularly remember that having sort of toughened up in an early age, you don't cry, being able to touch into real sobs, real heart-opening sobs that melted the armor on me. And I also remember the huge amount of fun and laughter that I was able to have when old repressed emotions had come out. So it wasn't just a veil of tears. It was also a hill of laughter. Just trying to work in another metaphor there. A veil of tears, a hill of laughter. I love it. I'll have to work on that one. What else do I remember? I know, yeah, I hope that people remember very clearly. I sometimes would, would ask people at a, at a talk, a, a live talk in London. Could I see your hands up, those who've done the process? Thank you. You're very welcome here. Could I see your hands up of those who haven't done the process? Very welcome. You're very welcome here. Hello. Um, anybody not remember? Always will get a laugh because um, you should remember whether you've done the process or not. So I remember a huge fear and trepidation going in, huge revelations in the middle of it, and huge satisfaction at the end. And you said something earlier, which I thought was, as a teacher, I really resonated with the memory of your own personal process gets intermingled at times with your experience of teaching the process. Yeah, it's funny because um, the last two years especially, I've pretty much always had somebody in training shadowing with me. 
And so I have to try to explain what works to, you know, to be a more in-the-moment teacher. And I'll say, well, if you can remember your own process and you're delivering that bit of information about why we're going to do this next piece, for instance, forgiveness, or for instance, you know, expressing old grief or old anger, then the students there in the room will more, be much more likely to get it. If you can remember or be in a meditation and see the images that we're portraying, then you're much more likely to, you know, make a, a far greater emotional impression with the, the people listening to it. So what's the point there? Is that the students learn in images? The students learn from like an emotional experience. You know, I'm thinking again, a, you know, an analogy would be a, a TED talk when they broke it down. The people who told stories and used emotional input, um, yes, there are other things like teaching something new and valuable, but you have to get across to the audience. This isn't just delivering content. I had a trainee just a couple of weeks ago who said that this is so different from corporate work. In corporate work, you can just deliver content. In the process, you have to be a real person there showing up with um, your total humanity. And for me, that was, oh, well, I don't really thought it that way. Yes, I take, it, I take it for granted. So I suppose like an actor being in a role rather than performing a role, we have to access something there rather than just putting, putting it on. Liza says... At times, at the end of processes, you know, there's lots of self-help books out there. It's a billion-dollar industry, and it's not. People really need the personal relationships to change. And uh, when you referenced Bob's big eyes, is that? I mean, that's part of what you're talking about when you speak to the value of the personal relationship in change. Yeah, of course. You know, that still continues. A teacher doesn't have more than eight, eight students in a process. You read, read the work, you have that first individual in encounter. You have to feel you have that individual. One, you, you have a one-to-one -one experience so that you can be seen and heard by that particular person. And so I felt, you know, I was seen and heard and understood by Bob Hoffman just in the time he took, you know, just in being being there. Of course, that's hugely important in a change, isn't it? And so you reference Bob, and as you have come to understand our founder, Bob Hoffman, what's important that people should know about? Well, I'm going to say one thing that maybe is a bit, a bit shocking, but I'm, I'm saying this in light of you know, the current, current events and the war on information and what, what I hear about what's allowed to be said in, in Russia. But Bob was able to create this because he had a light and a dark side. He was no saint. You know, he was there with his human, all too human patterns, you know, and he knew this and he could forgive himself for it and he could move on. But I would in no way say that, you know, he was just an amazing non-guru guru who breathed light and compassion to all the world. So in finding out about him it's like oh my god he did this and this and he would row with so and so and he would have a big bust up with so and so and at the same time delivering this incredibly compassionate forgiving work which was designed to spread peace you know if he was a mahatma gandhi or you know krishnamurti or someone you would expect him to be wafting through very very peacefully but he managed 
to inspire people and piss people off. He was very stubborn. You know, he wasn't an, a nasty piece of work or arrogant or, you know, got rude, but he was very stubborn. And I suppose that stubbornness helped him as somebody who was uneducated and grew up poor to get things done in the world. You know, he made something of himself as a businessman. He made something of his his vision in the personal development development world. But one of the big things, and sorry if this is a very long answer to your question. So in 93, we taught a process in Europe, and then we went for a 10-day road trip through Wales, England, Scotland. And I remember him saying at the time, if I could rename this whole process, I would call it the dark side process. Now, of course, it wasn't called the Hoffman process then. It was called the quadrinity process of Hoffman we gave, you know, after he, after he died. But what he meant by that was I want people to realize the dark side in our nature is always going to be around. It isn't going to go away. What we have to do is to keep empowering our our light side. And if he didn't see him, you know, that he had this big shadow, if the light is stronger, the shadow is stronger. If he didn't see himself had this big shadow, he wouldn't probably be able to create work that kept on in a cycle of transformation, digging out what's in, in the way, digging it out, going deeper and deeper and deeper and saying, hey, it's an internal battle and it's eternal battle. You'll always be doing it. Don't give up your guard and enjoy the good things of life. It's an internal battle and it's an eternal battle. Maybe the way he showed up is part of what we want for our students too, which is to acknowledge and not pathologize ourselves that we all do have that dark side as well as our light. Yeah. In that way, you know, he he would make a a balance or he would find a middle way between a spiritual bypass. And again, you know, he could be less than absolutely charming when he would say a phony, holy way of looking at things. Or on the other hand, yeah, to pathologize and think that we're just, as sometimes Western psychology has, you know, a mess of negative features that we've got to keep, keep working on and working on. That balance, this is the way the work goes. Polishing the diamond, but rubbing the mud off. Polishing the diamond, rubbing the mud off. I love it. You know, you actually also earlier in this conversation brought up something I thought that was interesting, which is that he was stubborn, but he also knew how to bring people together. And so in addition to his like natural innocence, he also brought in people and was curious enough to engage others early on in the formation. Is that true? Yeah. I mean, he certainly had a social skill, a charm, as well as having so something so valuable that people wanted to, to learn from him. He, you know, he was always known to be generous, to be hospitable. Um, I knew him when he had you know, a, nice, a nice house. He was able to do the entertainment, but I think all his adult life, he probably had that. So he would, you know, invite somebody out to a meal, invite somebody to his house to a meal. They'd have a talk about it. They'd find things in common. They would network. They would meet so-and-so and so-and-so. And I suppose he was lucky enough to be in, in the Bay Area where a lot of people were and had collected there at the end of the, end of the 60s. And so he put people together and he was listened to. And they thought, wow, we'll include you in our, in our thing if we can, but we certainly want to 
learn more from you. He was a magnet that attracted some other other talents around. Do you feel Bob and your training and his legacy in you when you lead and teach the process? You feel like it's a part of you? Yeah. I'm just trying to think how how I would feel that. I think part of it is just, yeah, I'm much more of a clear, directed, this is the direction we're going to go personality when I'm teaching the teaching the process. You know, I have to tell them, I'm not, I'm not always like this. Uh, and that was Bob. You know, he just would really go for something. You know, he knew this was it. He didn't have many, many doubts. So, for instance, if a trainee or somebody who's a young teacher says, oh, no, I'm not sure about that. That could really scare people. That feels a bit weird. I would say something like, hey, a lot of it because it's going to feel weird to them. A lot of it is scary. We'll do that because that will get them through. And that kind of thing comes from Bob, the sense of, you know, we can do this. We've got permission to take people so far out of their comfort zone that they can get a real breakthrough. I'm always amazed at how much we take students out of their comfort zone during the process. Yeah, no, we take we take risks, but people know that there are good, very good intentions behind them. Yeah, and they're held, and they're safe, and um, everything's well thought out. And someone they know really recommended the process or the book they read. Yeah, if they survived it, it has to be okay. I'm not enjoying it right now, but if they came out looking great. <laughs> there is that faith in their fellow. Uh, friends and colleagues who've who swear by it enough that they hang in there in the middle of it. Yeah, of course. It's a you know I sometimes go and ask somebody. So who was it? You know, if I may ask, who you know, who recommended this? You know, what did they say about it? Because it also helps them anchor that. Oh yes, that's true. There was there was a recommendation before I came and did this crazy thing. Tim, why why do you like teaching? and leading your institute in the UK, what wakes you up in the morning, quickens your pulse about being associated and leading this thing called the Hoffman process? To make it better, to take what's already quite a acute and interesting experience and refine it even more. You know, if I was an engineer, which I'm not, I can hardly, you know, drill a hole in a wall, um, you know, I, I might be refining a car engine or a piece of agricultural machinery or designing this or that. What I love doing is designing and redesigning this work so that it can land with people better. And that's, you know, I can say that subjectively and objectively because that's the feedback I get whenever we have a, a session with my colleagues. And you always look like you're trying to make it better. That's what excites me. And that's what excited me about, you know, speaking the other languages and being able to speak to people in brazil or or wherever about their process how can we make it better make it interesting for us to teach and for the students to go wow this is good stuff i know you've taught a bunch in the u.s you and i have never taught together you're going to come back so we can meet in person and teach together well i had a good run of it in the five years before the pandemic actually sorry that we missed each other we missed each other then I'm just reassessing travel now. I was back there in, in January, but I decided not to teach. At the moment, I'm really needed here. So to, even to take one in the US would be leaving one here, which sort of delays the training for, for people and so on. So 
One day, yes, because it, it is a lot of there's a lot of fun there. I don't have the oh, you're the guy who runs the institute persona there. I can just be an, another member of the crew. I imagine you are back up and running fully and waitlisted post-pandemic in your institute. Yeah, no, I think all of us have, have and we're in, we're in great demand, but only last, no, only this week have we gone full capacity because of social distancing and masks and everything. We've been sort of only 75% we could get because of the, our rooms are smaller than yours. Um, but just this week, we've gone back to full capacity, which allows us to put more people through. But yeah, we're um, still still wait waitlisted, and hopefully, yeah, we'll contain more people and put this put this on for more more people. If now, what is it when the teacher's there, the student appears, or is it the other way around? When the students are ready, the teacher appears. I was getting mixed up with Kevin Costner's film, A Field of Field of Dreams. Build the field, and they will, and they will come. And they will come, right? It does. It is the opposite there. Yeah, Tim, what's it been like to reflect all the way back to your childhood as a curious boy on up to your career leading the institute and to weave in Bob and his work and his history? What's it been like to do it? Yeah, what's it like to to reflect on all those things? What do you notice? I notice a sort of a sense of uh, a warmth with history, you know, in the same way you asked about, you know, how do I feel, Bob? I, I feel a warm glow that I'm a member of a tradition at the same time. It's been very useful in helping me overcome, you know, if I look back at my child and just went, overcome that to integrate that as a part, as a part of me, rather than thinking, oh, I don't ever want to you know, go back there again, it's traumatic or dark or, or whatever memories. So yeah, it's been interesting. It, it definitely, you know, it follows, it follows a thread in that I did the process 32 years ago. I would never imagine even having the same job for more than about two years. I've actually been teaching this for, yeah, three decades. It's, um, it's, it's stunning. So it gives me a warm glow to be part of this tradition. Tim, I'm grateful for your time in this conversation. Thank you. Very good talking with you, Drew, and thank you for teasing out some of the things I haven't really reflected on. Thank you for listening to our podcast. My name is Liza Ingrassi. I'm the CEO and president of Hoffman Institute Foundation. And I'm Ras Ingrassi, Hoffman teacher and founder of the Hoffman Institute Foundation. Our mission is to provide people greater access to the wisdom and power of love. In themselves, in each other, and in the world. To find out more, please go to hoffmaninstitute.org.